0: oh hey i'm so glad that you found us my name is michael and i get to be the pastor at shepherds community united methodist church in lakeland florida you're listening to the it's better when you're here podcast where every week we upload the messages that are preached at our church every sunday we hope by listening to this uh, you feel safe heard and loved by the god that created you we hope this message makes an impact in your life if listening to this makes a difference reach out to us and connect with us either on social media or on our website, shepherdsumc.com. All right, here's the message.
1: So our scripture passage for this morning is out of Joshua 4. I'll be reading out of the Common English Bible. When the entire nation had finished crossing the River Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Pick twelve men from the people, one man per tribe. Command them, pick up twelve stones from right here in the middle of the Jordan, where the feet of the priests had been firmly planted. Bring them across with you and put them down in the camp where you are staying tonight. Joshua called for the 12 men he had appointed from the Israelites, one man per tribe. Joshua said to them, cross over to the middle of the Jordan, up to the Lord, your God's chest, which is the ark. Each of you lift up a stone on his shoulder to match the number of tribes of the Israelites. This will be a symbol among you. In the future, your children will ask, what do these stones mean to you? Then you will tell them that the water of the Jordan was cut off before the Lord's covenant chest. When it crossed over the Jordan, the water of the Jordan was cut off. These stones will be an enduring memorial for the Israelites. The Israelites did exactly what Joshua ordered. They lifted 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, matching the number of the tribes of the Israelites, exactly as the Lord had said to Joshua. They brought them over to the camp and put them down there. Joshua also set up 12 stones in the middle of the Jordan, where the feet of the priest had stood while carrying the covenant chest. They are still there today. May God bless a reading of his word today. So we are in the middle of a series. You're in the middle of a series called Mixtape. And this week, we are going to talk about the rewind button. The rewind button is just kind of a symbol for remembering, for going back and looking at what's come before, your life before, and... Just we are a people of remembering. That's who we are. So I think it's really important that we talk about this. But before we get into that too much, I'm going to tell you a story. So in, let me see, it was February of 2007. I was working at a church in Annapolis, Maryland, and I had an opportunity to go on a short-term mission trip to southern Sudan. Um, It was one of the most amazing experiences of my life. I've been on lots of short-term mission trips, but I've never been anywhere like southern Sudan. And chances are none of you have been anywhere like Southern Sudan. Um, It is a place that people don't take mission trips to. So if you look at mission organizations and you wanna go on a short-term mission trip, you're not gonna find a place in Southern Sudan for you to go because it's one of the least resourced, least accessible, least developed places on earth. As a matter of fact, it's considered a fourth world country. Although that terminology is kind of out of date, we don't really use that. But think about the implications of that, beyond third world to fourth world. Um, When you fly in, you can't fly directly into the country. You have to land in Kenya and you have to charter basically a puddle jumper to get into where we were supposed to be. There are no roads. And when I say no roads, I mean there are no roads. There's no electrical grid. So at night when the lights go off, unless you have a generator, there's a billion stars and a billion growls that you cannot identify. Um, The people there are as happy and well-adjusted and as kind and as gracious as any place I've ever been in my life. But it's a challenge. So one of the things we were doing is continuing the work that had started there. We're working on a local hospital. So we're building out the main structure of the hospital, bringing facilities in, uh, building a generator for the hospital. We were also trying to help resource some of the local pastors. Almost the entirety of South Sudan is Christian. Um, So we are bringing resources in for them, whether it's books in their native tongue or giving them techniques on how they can um, help engage their people. But more than that, we were learning from them um, because the church in this region was was just exploding at the time. So we're doing all this. We're having a great time, Um, really kind of adjusting to the atmosphere, adjusting to the culture, adjusting to the temperature, which I'll get to in a moment. And about halfway through a weekend, uh, we had some of the leaders of the village we were in called Workuk. Those leaders came up to us and said, we would like to show you our worship space. You know, we're all ministers and, and Christians, so we're like, that would be great. Show us, your, show us your worship space. And they said to us, okay, well, we'll leave at noon, and we'll take the day, and it's just a short hike up the road. Anytime anyone from another country without infrastructure says a short hike, It's not a short hike. Now, this is the hottest place I've ever been in my entire life. So basically where we were in South Sudan is the point at which the Sahara Desert, okay, imagine what you imagine when you imagine the Sahara Desert, that's what's going on here. The Sahara Desert starts to blend into the savannas in Central Africa. So right at this exact place, you have all the heat of the Sahara, and then you have the savanna starting. So every year, right, around December and January, they have monsoons that come through and it just floods the area. So we arrived at the peak season of heat and humidity. So it was literally as hot as the seventh circle of hell and as humid as the inside of your mouth all the time. (laughs) If you're forgetting what that feels like, stick your finger near your mouth. That's what you felt like all the time. So we're just trusting people and we decided to go on this walk and we're going down the road. And it takes us four hours and there's no tree coverage. Let me just explain this real quick. So there, it's like Savannah land and some sand and absolutely no trees at all. So you're walking directly out in the sun the entire time, but you don't dare complain, okay? Because after you've been there a week, you learn to not complain about comfort things. Most of these people that were leading us didn't have shoes, they walked everywhere. If they wanted to go to a market, they had to walk 20 miles to another town called Boer. Like everything was just extreme contrast to the comfort of our lives. So I had to bite my tongue the entire time and smile and nod my head a lot and pray a whole lot and have conversations with God a whole lot the entire way down the road. And they're telling us about how this place came to be and they're telling us about the, the culture at the time and how all these villages come together, but they're not really describing the building. And we knew it would be kind of a, a primitive building because everything was primitive, but we didn't know what to expect. So about hour four into the walk, we turn this corner, and it's been a, a basically a straight dirt road, flat for four hours, and we turn this corner and there's a clearing, and there's a mound off to the left of us that is just, it's dirt, with patches of black in it. The elders explained to us that when they first came to Christ, this is like decades ago, like 90, 100, 110 years ago, that people came together from the various villages in the area and decided that they would burn those things that they considered to stand in the way of their relationship with this new God that they found. So some of them would bring things like uh, um, alcohol their version of alcohol. Some people would bring things like um, clothing. Just, some people would bring actual idols, and they would just put them together, and they would burn them, like Old Testament type stuff, right? So he's telling us his story, and it looks like a pretty big mound. He says, you know, every few years we come together as a community, and when he says we come together as a community, he means like villages from hundreds of miles away will walk to this central place in community and they'll get rid of what they consider to be idols. Stuff that we can't, like I get angry when I'm on I-4 for more than an hour. Like these people are walking hundreds of miles to get rid of this stuff. So it's very cool, um, very convicting. And then we walk a little further down the road and you look at what you think is just a, a grass field. And he explains to us that this is the meeting place. I'm like, well, they meet outside. Okay, this is cool. We're probably a couple hundred yards away from it. And we start to walk towards it, and I realize that what I'm seeing isn't a grass field. It's the top of a worship structure, and it is 100 yards by 100 yards wide. Like, I want you to think about that. So it's in the shape of a cross, 100 by 100. Think of two football fields intersecting. And I'm kind of staggered by it. You're looking at the outside of it. The, wall, the walls on the, the side of the structure are probably this tall. And the grass probably goes up to the ceiling and it just goes back. So I'm trying to figure out how this thing works. And he starts to tell us about this structure and how originally when they came together, they decided they wanted to build a space where all people in the tribe and the communities could come together for a share and a celebration every few years. Actually, they would do it every year. So people would travel hundreds of miles and bring food and bring things to, to, to build this place. So you're walking up to it. It's, it's really impressive. And then they lead you inside. The inside of this building has seating for 3,000 people. Just imagine what that looks like. It's larger than any worship space in Lakeland. No matter how much money the church has, it doesn't have a worship space this large. And it's all in the round. So you walk in, and there's there's places where the light's coming in, and then you realize that the way it works is it's just a big bowl that's been carved out of the ground. So it's just massive clay bowl that's been formed and carved out of the ground with just these interlocking circles of of places where people can see. It. And everything's smoothed out, smoothed out to the degree that There's actually, should I share this? Sure, I'll share it, why not? Least you can do is not invite me back. There are like places where people's rear ends have been formed like this is their seat. So there are like little butts all the way around. And you walk in and the most amazing thing to me, and there's lots of amazing things I don't have time to cover, is the entire structure 100 by 100 yards was supported by a forest of trees on the inside. So what they would do is they would take trees, and the trees in the middle were probably 100 feet tall, and they would support the entire structure with a tree maybe every five feet. So you walk in, and it's just a sea of trees, and all the bark has been stripped off, and it's just smooth trees all the way up, and we're sitting there, and we're hearing the story of how this happened, and all these people coming together, and them building this structure, and them taking these trees and asked him, is that why there are no trees around here? And he said, no, there haven't been trees around here in human living memory. We bring these trees from right outside Kenya, which is several hundred miles away. They don't have trucks. They didn't have any sort of flatbed system. They would drag them or carry them. And I mean, probably a good 150 trees they would bring all the way there. The entire ceiling was made out of um, like thatch, but it was woven. The women in the communities would weave it all together to where the weave was such that there was little vents around the outside where the walls were, and the air would come in through the vents and go straight out because it was so hot, it would come in and hit the cool air and just rise straight up through the roof. So they had constant ventilation and constant breeze coming through. Isn't that ingenious? So we're sitting there and we're listening to this and none of us are talking because we thought we had amazing places to do ministry at. But it was nothing like this. You could walk down to the center and in the very center was a little platform, little clay platform that was about this tall. And it was about this. The diameter was about like this. It was a circle. So it was in the round. And you could stand on it. And I could talk without a microphone. And every single person at every single place in the entire structure could hear what I was saying whether I was facing them or not, because of the way they'd shaped it, the sound just traveled around the circles. It was incredible. I've never seen anything like it. So we're sitting, listening to this story, thinking about the effort and the time and the energy that these people from these communities that were somehow less developed than we are, had put into this structure. And I just decided to ask him, I said, so, How old is the structure? He had told us, you know, 90, 100 years ago. That's a long time for that to be there. He said, oh, the building is three years old. I said, the building is three years old. You just told us that. He said, no, no, that's when we started building it. Every five years, they have to rebuild the entire building again because of termites. Every five years. Think about that. Every five years, the entire process starts again, because all the walls are just made out of dung and clay. So all of the wood has to be brought back over. All of the seats have to be made up again. And they rotate the building. So it goes 90 degrees every time so that they can keep track of what happened when. This is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people coming together in community every five years to do the same thing they've always done. And I just asked them, I said, you know, we're here, building a fairly modern hospital. Why don't we just build you a worship structure? And he said this, and this is the entire point of why I'm telling this story. He said, no, this is who we are. Because when we build together, we remember the story of who we are and what we do. And if we stop building, it would be like forgetting our own name. Because we are our story. That's pretty incredible, isn't it? We are our story. You know, there are some of us in this room, myself included, that when you you think about thinking back, reflecting, rewinding, you don't have a hard time doing that. Maybe you're the type of person who does this late at night when you're under a lot of stress and you think about every decision you've ever made, every conversation you've ever had, every path that went this way and that way, but you went this way, maybe you should have gone that way. Maybe you're that type of person. So thinking back for you is not the issue. But maybe you're scared to look back at your life. Maybe you're scared to look back at your history. Maybe you're scared to look back at who we are as a people. And that's where the story from the scripture that we heard earlier today comes in. Because this story from Joshua is about remembering. It's about hitting rewind. So I'm going to catch you up to what's happening before the scripture we read today. So Joshua is leading the Israelites into the promised land. This is the land where everything good happens. This is their goal as a people for generations and generations is to get here. The entire time they're going through, if you're not familiar with the story, they're fighting. And when I say fighting, I don't mean coming up against conflict. I mean they are in literal war. Some of you who have been to war, you know what it is. So it's no small thing to say that this community is fighting their way to the promised land. And they finally get at the cusp of crossing the river to go into the destination. And before they do that, Joshua has this notion that this is a moment that needs to be remembered. So he gathers the people together. He says, here's what's going to happen because the Jordan was no joke. It wasn't a simple ford to walk through. There was no bridge. There was no dolly ready to take them across. There was nothing there. So he said, here's what we're going to do. We have the Ark of the Covenant, which is the box where the Ten Commandments were held. If, if you have a hard time picturing that, it's supposed to represent the very presence and power of God for them at that time. Okay? So let's just say God is with us at this time. He says, what's going to happen is the priests are going to walk into the middle of the river. And as they walk in, the river is going to stop. And it's going to make a way for us to cross the river. Does that sound familiar to any of you that have a history with the Bible? So he's literally rewinding to another story in which these people came to an insurmountable obstacle and God made a way. He's saying it's going to happen again. So what will happen is they'll come in. The water will stop upstream, everybody can get across. But before we finish, what I want you to do is I want you to pick 12 men, one from each tribe represented here. And I want you to go back into the river and I want you to find right where each of the priests stood. And I want you to grab a big rock. And I want you to bring it out and bring it to camp. So this is what is set up this moment. So they get there, the priests walk down, the water stops. And that's where we start. We start with the entire nation had finished crossing over the Jordan. The Lord said to them, Joshua, pick 12 men. Joshua called for the 12 men that he had appointed, one man for each tribe. Joshua said, go over into the middle of the Jordan, up to the Lord your God's chest. So walk over to where it's dry, and I want you to find a big rock and put it on your shoulder. This will be a symbol among you. In the future, your children may ask, basically, what are these rocks for? And you will tell them that the water of the Jordan was cut off before the Lord's covenant chest. He's using what had happened before at the Red Sea to inspire hope for people in the moment that felt like there might not be a path. And he's understanding that it's not enough just for the people in the path to understand what happened, but people in future generations are going to need to understand God's goodness, not just at that time, but at this time too. And then the Israelites did exactly that. They go in, they bring the rocks out. They bring them to the camp. So what's important about this, and there's, there's a lot of things in this passage to unpack, and I don't have the time to unpack it or the energy to unpack it, but there are a few things that I think are really important for us to understand when it comes to looking back, to glancing back at where we were or back and how God's goodness was with us at the time. So I just wanna cover a few quick things to maybe give you a sense that remembering your story and looking back helps you to understand who you are, who God is, and who we are to one another. First is this, we are a people who remember. Remembering is what makes us that people. There's no such thing as faith, religion, church without looking back. Everything in church life, everything in religious life is about looking at what's happened in the past. We're discussing a story that happened several thousand years ago. It's important for us to look back so that we can have a sense of identity now. So everything we do in church, from the songs that we sing to hopefully the messages that we hear, from the way church is set up to the way we do worship, So the way we do hopefully our Christian education is set up about looking back and understanding what happened, the story of what happened, so that we can understand how our story fits into it now. It's really important. If you forget where it was, you can't understand where you are, and you don't have a concept of where to go. So you'll make it up on the spot. That's why people can call themselves Christians and look like anything. So we have a story as Christians, and actually, our spiritual story begins in the Old Testament. We have a story as people of God. We have a story as followers of Jesus. We have a story as the original church. We have a story as the Catholic church. We have a story as the Anglican church. We have a story with John Wesley that started the Methodist church, the United Methodist church, the Florida United Methodist Conference. And we have a story as Shepherds Community UMC. There's a reason this spot was picked to build the church. There's a reason that the road outside is called Shepherds Road. Like who tells those stories? How do we remember those stories that inform us of how we got here? Because it's not just enough to get here. Because people all along the way built things so that we could get here. So who tells those stories in this church? Where can you go to hear and understand and celebrate what this place looks like? I work at Florida Southern College. You can go over to Florida Southern, go to the library, and go to the top stairs, and we have the Florida United Methodist Archive. If you want to know about Methodism in this state, come on over. It's free. Go upstairs and take a look at it. Because whether you consider yourself Methodist or not, that's part of your heritage sitting here today. So we are people that remember. Think about the things that we do. Communion, it's about remembering. The offering is about remembering. What we do is we remember because the story is what makes us who we are. Second thing is this, and this is very, very important. And I may step on a few toes with this. Don't invite me back. Future generations will see what we choose to remember. So politics and worldview and a moral code is not compelling to young people now or young people in the future. If that's where your identity in Christ is, please just shut up. Don't talk to them about what it is you think about Jesus if your identity in Christ is built around your worldview first and not the teachings of Jesus. Two things. Number one, young people will sniff that out in a heartbeat. Not only will they sniff it out, they'll leave it behind because they have other places in the world to find out meaning and value And if they see a contrast between what Jesus says and how you practically function as believers, they'll walk away from it. Or they'll find a community that does it in the vein of what Jesus says. They'll do it. And then you'll come to the pastor of the church or the the minister at the college and you say, I don't understand why my student walked away from the faith. They just won't do it. There is a reason that we have confirmation. Confirmation. Because we have to be reminded because we forget. So there's a certain point at which a child is brought into the church, and we as a community say, we will be about the teaching. We will be about the story. We will help this child develop their faith. And then there's a certain point, and maybe it's too early. Maybe they're not ready to ask these questions. I don't know. Where we sit down and say, this is the story. This is what we believe. This is what we learn. This is how we function. Do you want to be a part of that? And then a child will decide, yes, I do want to be a part of that. And I've had some students say no to the great shock of their parents. And those students who say no almost invariably come back, but they come back because they want to, not because it's a rite of passage for them. I feel like we ought to have confirmation for adults. I feel like we need to say, okay, you've got the fish on your car. You've got the fish on your business card. Here's what it is we actually think. Do you want to be a part of this? Because if you don't want to be a part of this, I guarantee you can find a deviation of Christianity that will match your opinion. We don't tell the story. I'm, I'm going to share this story because I read it this week and I was so upset about it. And it's not a political story. But it is a story about politics. And I feel like it needs to be said. There's a well-known Southern Baptist leader named Russell Moore, very conservative. And there was an article in, um, I think it was Variety magazine, where they interview him. And the churches that he goes to are very conservative churches, much more conservative than many of us may be used to. And there's a phenomenon that he's running into with pastors who are talking to him about this. And here it goes. Pastors are giving a sermon and then they're having people come up after the sermon and say, where did you get the liberal talking points from? And usually it's when the pastor preaches over the Sermon on the Mount. And the pastor will invariably say, like, listen, I'm as conservative as I come. These are the words of Jesus. And almost invariably, when people are confronted with the words of Jesus, because many of these people don't really know the Bible or the story very well. When they're confronted that these are Jesus' words, almost all of them say the same thing. It's not, you know what, I have some wrestling to do. You know what, maybe I need to think about this some more. It's this. Well, um, that doesn't work now. Taking the Sermon on the Mount out of the story of Jesus is the equivalent politically of taking the Constitution out of the United States. The Sermon on the Mount is the most significant moral teaching that Jesus makes. It's a collection of all his greatest hits. If it makes you uncomfortable to hear the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon isn't the problem. But it's that we've forgotten the story and the teaching to such a degree that we can justify dismissing the story. Of course, that doesn't work now. Jesus doesn't teach us the way the world works. He teaches us the way the world should work. That's the entire point. Now, if you're struggling with me talking about this, take it up with Jesus. He has a higher salary than I do. I don't want to talk to you after the service. But people on both sides of the aisle do this with Jesus. And young people watch that. When we don't look back, we look forward with a God that we create in our image. When we don't look back to remember who God is as revealed through Jesus, he looks just like us. And that's a bad place to start. So we are a people who remember. Future generations are watching us. And thirdly, we remember because we forget. So in verse 9 is my favorite, one of my favorite things in the entire Bible. Verse 9 says, Joshua also set up 12 stones in the middle of the Jordan where the feet of the priests had stood while carrying the covenant chest. They are still there today. The only time you could see the stones in the river that Joshua put in the river is when drought happened and the river dried up. Why is that significant? Because we need to remember when things are hard when life doesn't make sense, when we get the sense that we've been abandoned, when when, when we don't feel like God is being faithful or we're being faithful. It's easy to remember God's goodness when everything is great. When the drought hits and the famine hits and the river is so low and you see the tops of those rocks, you're reminded that even now, God is faithful. So they get to cross the river, they'd go into the promised land. Everything was great for the Jewish people from that point till now, right? They'd arrived. Hey, this was the goal. Nothing bad happened from that point on, right? No sense of fighting, no sense of... It was a struggle all the time. We remember because our lives aren't easy. If somebody's trying to sell you a version of Christianity or a faith that's easy, don't buy it. Because you have to live in reality. Joshua set the 12 stones in the middle of the Jordan so they could only be seen in times of drought. And so that they could be reminded when things are really difficult that God is still faithful. You remember the famous passage, Jeremiah 29, 11? Does anybody remember that by heart? What does it say? For the Lord, what does it say? I have plans. I have plans for you, declares the Lord. Plans to give you a... Does anybody know the historical context? You guys don't know the Bible very well. Good job, Michael. So does anybody know the context for that? We always see that passage when people are graduating high school. And it's like, yay, you're off to great things. Does anybody know the context of that passage? That was given by a prophet, Jeremiah to people immediately before they were going to go in captivity for 70 years. They weren't graduating to go to their best life. That passage was spoken to them before they were taken to Babylon. And some people who heard that being spoken to them did not make it back from Babylon. They died in captivity. Does that change how you view that passage? It should because that passage isn't about what's going to happen next. And it's not about the successful future alone. It's understanding that God views your life not as like a series of things happening, a series of events. It's not a movie to God. It's one clear picture. So when God says, I have a hope in a future, he sees the entirety of your life. That no matter what happens in the next chapter or 20 years down the road or 30 years down the road, ultimately, God has you. Now, students might use it differently if they knew they were about to go into captivity. So I'm a person, and I'll close with these two things. I'm a person who struggles with depression. I have my entire life, I'm medically diagnosed. Maybe you do too. If you do, it's more common than you think. And my struggle with depression is something that's affected almost every area of my life. And I've worked to cope, fight my way through it, medication, Um, therapy. I do lots of things that, that help me, that are good tools for me. I saw a quote from somebody that said that depression is the inability to form a future in your mind. And if you've ever had depression, that's exactly true, is you feel you will always feel this way. You feel like it will never change. You feel like there is no hope. And it's crippling. I had a friend who also struggled with depression, who still struggles with it, who we were talking about therapy, we were talking about things that we do to overcome it, and he said the most helpful thing to me has been journaling, is writing my day to day how I feel and what comes of it. Because when I'm depressed and I look back at my life, I can't find good stuff, and it's there everywhere. I can't be like, you know what, I felt this way, but look what happened, look who helped. You know what, there was no hope and this gave me hope. And I've started journaling in those times where I feel like there is no hope. I force myself to get my journal out and flip back a year, two years, 10 years. And I can see that there's hope because there's always been hope along the way. We forget, that's why we remember. So last night as I was finishing writing this up, I decided I would get on Google and I would look up Workhook in South Sudan. Because technology is advanced where they cover it. For years and years and years, there was no coverage. You know, you get on like Google Earth, you click on a place and it's just blurred out. That was South Sudan. But now it's a country, they've had lots of developments, they've had lots of issues, but I I was reasonably sure I could find it. So it took me about 35 minutes and I finally found Workhook. And I zoom in and zoom in and zoom in and the village itself has not developed at all. It's been 16 years since I was there. So I scrolled down a little bit on the map and I found the hospital that we helped build. And it's still there. And I scrolled around and I found the little place that we were resourcing pastors. It's still there. And then I scrolled down and down and down and down and down. And I found the worship building and it was gone. And it was replaced with a modern building And I was heartbroken, right? So I was like, oh no. So I called my friend, um, Jim up, who coordinated the trip down there. And I was like, hey, when did they build this new building here? What happened to the old one? So the termites just got to be too much. They tore it down. And the people who had funded the hospital says, we'll build a modern building for you. So they built the building. And I was like, that is terrible. He said, no, they love it. They still worship there. And I was like, well, that story they told us about having to build it every five years, that changed my life. He's like, oh, don't worry. Because every five years, hundreds of people from the communities come back to that modern building and they disassemble the entire thing. So they go up to the bricks and they take a chisel and they break the mortar out. Every single brick, a hundred by a hundred, it's in the same state. They take it, they sand it down, they repair the bricks. They take the thatch off, they replace the thatch. There's no electricity in it. There's no lighting in it. It's the same on the inside. They replace the floor. and You know what they do? They put it all back together and rotate it 90 degrees every five years. You know why? That's who they are. That's who they are. So as you leave today, my question to you is, who are you? What is your story as a church, as a person, as a believer? And if you don't know what that is, get to studying.
0: Let's pray. All right, friends. I hope you heard something in today's message that made an impact in your life, helped you know that you're loved by God, and inspired you to do something about the gospel that is offered to you. Now receive this blessing as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.